0: Welcome to this modern education podcast that explores learning, from the everyday exchange of thoughts and ideas to the theories and practices behind entire systems. Think education is cool? So do we. So we pair two conversations learn about our guests, then learn from our guests, share your takeaways, and come back for more. You're listening to Think Pair Share. With me, Audrey Scott. Today we'll be talking about literacy. My guest believes it's essential to our being, that it's what ties us to history, to community, to culture, and allows us to engage. That's very high praise and a pretty tall order, so I'm excited to jump right in. But first, allow me to introduce Ernest Morel. He's the Coyle Professor of Literacy Education, a member of the faculty in the English and Africana Studies Departments, and Director of the Center for Literacy Education at the University of Notre Dame. Since 2015, Dr. Morel, a well-respected leader in the field of English education, the African diaspora, and media and popular culture, has been ranked among the top university-based education scholars. In an introduction to his biography, he says, Words are power and freedom. Words are life and love. Words are seeds and the vista. Words, at least revolutionary ones, are the source of revolutions. I live for words. Writing is my service. My very words are love. We're so happy to have him with us today, Ernest. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks, Audrey. It's a pleasure.
0: Okay, great to see you after uh, all these months. <laughs> during the pandemic. How have you been keeping busy? I know you've got the kids there at the house. What kind of fun stuff have you been doing?
1: Well, we tried to make it um, kind of a winter wonderland. We uh, built an art studio over the summer. And so the kids have been painting on canvas. Um, They've been learning music and recording music. Um, They've been writing. My youngest son has been coding. And then also uh, we just decided we were going to enjoy the winter and Got snowboards, and we've been, you know, just trying to mix it up a little bit, uh, and that's been fun.
0: Oh my gosh, it sounds like a winter wonderland.
1: Yeah, it does. You got you no. got to celebrate it, right? It's going to be three months of the year. You got to do <laughs> something with it. So we got a lot of snow. Snowboarding yes. works.
0: I think we're getting some more as we speak, actually, yeah, yeah. too. So um, thank you for joining me via Zoom. And sure. we'll start with those sort of icebreakers. Some are quick answers. Some are maybe not. Some are, I'm sure, goofy. But yeah. um, appreciate your participation. Sure. I think start with a softball one. Are you a morning person or a night person?
1: Oh, we're night people. So when we went, we went into a very dark place when it was uh, like no school. <laughs> we were up till three in the morning and then up at noon, I figured like 6.37 is midday um, in my normal biorhythm. So you get the same amount of sleep, but there's just something about it. I think um, because we're creative types and writing and reading and that kind of stuff. Um, so, so 10 a.m. is morning enough for me.
0: <laughs> I hear you, that sounds great to yeah. me. Uh, hey, you gotta take the perks of this type of situation. So yeah, that's yeah. one of them. Okay, if you could only watch one genre of movies for the rest of your life, what would it be?
1: Oh, that's a hard one. I'm a like a if, if there's a ball, I watch it. <laughs> but in terms of movies, probably like histories. Um, I really do like uh, kind of well-made period dramas, um, particularly the, the Renaissance and the early modern. It just seems like such a, I don't know, sophisticated time, you know, compared compared to now. Uh, I really love the costumes of opera. Um, it just uh there's just something about it.
0: You're halfway there, I think, with the bow tie. So that'll yeah, be Yeah, see that's okay. <laughs> I, <try. laughs> I love it. I love it. Um okay, great. This one might be a little silly, but what fictional family would you want to be a part of?
1: like like TV or, or, or a novel? Yeah.
0: yeah, any anything.
1: Oh I think it'd be fun to be a Medici.
0: Ooh. <laughs> They're not okay. fictional
1: so much, but yeah, you know.
0: Hey, that's okay. Minus the head
1: choppings and all that.
0: (laughs) You get to pick or choose a little bit. Run a bank,
1: you know, live in (laughs) Milan, you know, have Michelangelo and, uh, you know, Raphael painting for you in the garage. I love it.
0: Can we come summer with you, please?
1: exactly. (laughs) Okay,
0: great. What's the the strangest compliment you've ever gotten?
1: Oh, uh, probably the version of, I thought this was going to suck, but then it was pretty good. (laughs) Whether it's the student at the end of class or a keynote, like I wasn't looking forward to this at all, but like you know, you made it. You didn't suck.
0: It didn't suck. That's good. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you ever received?
1: You know, I, I think um, my father passed away a couple years ago. It's like every day, I play back something that he said. But you know, what 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 doesn't take you out makes you stronger. Um, you know, family is everything. Um, your faith roots are deep. Yeah. Trust God you know, love is the greatest strength that you have. Emotions are good to have, but not to be ruled by, you know, it's just a tons of things that he says, if you let someone control your emotions and you become their puppet. But uh, yeah. just a lot of maxims from, from my dad that just kind of pop into my head. Really, it's about family, faith, fidelity, you know, kind of like God, country, Notre Dame, those values are everlasting. Uh, I feel like my dad had eternal values. Um, so it's just the, the consolation of those are kind of the I don't know, it's my greatest hits. You know, there's the gospel, there's my mom, dad, and my grandma.
0: Oh gosh, thank you for sharing that actually. He mm-hmm. sounds very wise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you've lived a, a bunch of other places and now you're living in South Bend. Can you tell me, for instance, something that you miss about New York and something that you like about here?
1: Everything's close. I feel like South Bend is enough city, enough town um, that, especially with Notre Dame on uh, the river and the downtown and it's, everything's really close you know, so you can experience city, you can go to a football game, you can go to a show and the campus is, is, is wonderful. And then I feel like we're, we're undersold on how much of a kind of a playground that is in the spring and the summer. And it's just kind of outdoors and Michigan right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess with New York, um, I mean, there is a kind of a frenzy to it. Um, there's a, a um, you know, just a lot of stuff to do. But I also feel like with DPAC and with you know, a lot of things we have, we, we, we get that, but you kind of get spoiled in New York, um, the, the kind of access that you have to kind of, I guess what we call high culture, um, the, the, the tremendous diversity, the urgency of it, you know, sometimes uh, one of my mentors when I got there, he says, you don't have to be good in New York, but you have to be fast. <laughs> so whether it's getting on a subway or, you know getting that seat at the restaurant that sort of thing and yeah. just kind of people watching you know we get off the subway at 72nd and walk up to 110th and broadway you know yeah. it's about a 40 minute walk but if you have the time for, for work it's just um, unbelievable I and mean, it's just a spectacle of the city the skyline when you're coming across to george washington or the throgs neck you know whether you're coming from the east or west uh, it's yeah. a it's pretty spectacular
0: I do. I, I actually worked out in New York right after I graduated from Notre Dame. Okay. And so I do um, really enjoy visiting and uh, getting back out there sometimes. But uh, but you're right. But there's there's positives about both places. So that's
1: that's yeah. great. I think college towns are the, actually the best um, combination yeah. because you have a lot of big city stuff, but it's in a small town. I've, I've really learned to love the college towns where I've lived. Yeah. There are special places great. in America.
0: I agree 100%. So thank you. Do you have a favorite childhood book and why?
1: There's the little engine that could. And, and you know, there's some Dr. Seuss, like Fox and Socks, And mm-hmm. I think what it is, is um, it's the memories you associate with the book. Because your mom read it to you over and over again. And, you know, I'll talk about the, you know, the fire engine books and that sort of thing. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, you just maybe read them over and over again. Or my grandma and one aunt lived on the same block. Three, there were three of us on the same block. So mm-hmm. I think... It's more the, the memories, the associations that you make with the books and the books themselves. And, you know, the research bears that out. It's, um, kids don't necessarily remember the books, but they remember the experiences that they have around them. Mm-hmm. And so they're fun. You know, we used to do Dr. Seuss and we try to make raps out of Dr. Seuss and do beats off of them and that sort of thing. But <laughs> I think it was just fun because you could memorize the words and they were pretty easy and they, they were silly. It wasn't like much to the stories. Um, but I was with Kwame Alexander. We were on a panel and we both chose Fox and Sox. And I went before him, he's like, no way. And I guess it's because it's a little bit, bit hip hop, you know, it's a little fun. And um, so of course I had to give my spiel and then listen to Kwame Alexander just wrap the whole book to the audience. and like, well, okay, I need I to choose a new book.
0: So. <laughs> you know. I think you would agree that every person has a story worth telling. Um, can you tell me a little bit about yours?
1: So I grew up in the Bay area. My mom and dad were school teachers and you we are just kind of making our way in the world as you know they were a first generation to really move from a pretty southern working class aesthetic into being professional so that was you know kind of fun to watch them and so i spent most of my formative years uh, in san jose growing up playing sports watching them do what they did and i was fortunate enough to be able to go to college on scholarship and you know i was i was going to major in business and law and you know that's that's what you do right and <laughs> You know, the more I got into, into that world, the more I really began to understand the, the logic and beauty of what my parents did. So subsequent to graduation, I actually ended up teaching in the Bay Area and, and doing a bunch of wild things in my classroom, got us on the front page of the New York Times, got us almost fired. But it was really just ways of getting kids super excited about, you know, school and learning and some of the things that I do now and I get paid for then. They wanted to fire me, but what it led me to understand was... Um, like the limitless potential of kids, but also the importance of of, of really doing academic research and trying to document um, how some of the beliefs about kids and learning were wrong. So I ended up going back to graduate school at Berkeley while I continued to teach in Oakland. And when I finished my coursework, uh, my wife and I moved down to Los Angeles, and I started at UCLA and created this program for kids, and that kind of took off. And I got my PhD and, you know, and then I just been on the academic track and working with kids and communities for the past 20 years. It's my 28th year as an educator, my 22nd year really full time in higher education. So that's taken us to Michigan, to UCLA, to Columbia, and ultimately here to Notre Dame. So I, re- I was reading back this weekend over you know, papers that I've written over the last 20, 25 years, and it's still the same story for me. It's still, you know, it doesn't get old. What literacy can do, why it's important, the potential of kids, the power of them interacting with stories, the beauty of being able to hear their own voice, to contribute to the conversation. Like Walt Whitman says, the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. Mm-hmm. And it's really just putting them on stage uh, mm-hmm. and, and letting, letting them go. You know, um, it's, mm-hmm. it's been a beautiful ride. I've been um, just really blessed.
0: Well, we are blessed to have you, and I'm not letting you off quite that easy, though. Yeah. I like to go back to where you almost got fired, et cetera, for just yeah. a quick second. Yeah. Um, because I think it matters why you were passionate about it. When you were growing up, you said maybe you would be a businessman, maybe you're a lawyer, yeah. and somehow you shifted to education, and, and obviously your parents were in that role. But can you pinpoint when it started to become a passion of yours?
1: So as a, as a college athlete, I was involved in a couple of programs where we got to work with young kids, it was like a thing you did in college, and it was pretty much I was interning for Bank of America, and you know I was thinking a JD MBA, and you know 40th floor office in the APG building in San Francisco overlooking the bridges and like where my bosses were. That sounded pretty cool, but it was um, I knew I wanted to write, and uh, I became really passionate about that. I became an English major my junior year. I kind of switched from economics to English, and no one at the bank had a problem with that. They said it doesn't matter what you major in, really. You're kind of learning to be a banker here. But uh, it went from a hobby to a real passion, and it wasn't. You know, I had a good time with the bank, but it was just making that decision of like what. Later on, I heard someone say, "No one wants to spend their life doing their second favorite thing," mm-hmm. and uh, my favorite thing was writing. And really trying to figure out how I might help people along in this trajectory. You know, as I said in my life, from the plantation to the palace, like how do we, how do we get there? Mm-hmm. And that became more, more valuable for me than how do I get there? But how do we get there? Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, there there were moments where uh, I'd look over because where I taught in Oakland, you could see the skyline in San Francisco and facing what I was going to face, I thought it's just the right decision. <laughs> you know, I could get back on that train and I could walk into the bank and they would hire me right away. So it was hard. But, you know, in retrospect, uh, I, I have no regrets. It was it was it was a really just it was Providence. And Father Tim, used to, you know, he mm-hmm. talked about providence. It was, it was providential. I wasn't so much a plan, but I just couldn't send the applications into the law school. And I didn't know what I was going to do. My mom said, well, you should come home and teach. And then I said, well, I'm going to teach and then go to law school. And, well, you know, I'm going to teach for another year. And then, well, you know, maybe I'll go to graduate school and get a, you know, a degree in English. And, well, maybe I'll do like English and education. So it just, it's just a series of steps. Um, it happened pretty quickly, you know, between say 21 and 25. By the time I was 25, I was pretty much on this track. But mm-hmm. I can't go back and really pinpoint moments. It was just it was I was called, yeah, you know, and right. and I was just lucky enough to to listen and to be surrounded by people in the bank and outside of the bank that really supported those decisions.
0: As an educator, what did you see potential? Your your mind went places that maybe other people's didn't. Were you driven by something else? Were you trying to teach them something? I think,
1: Audrey, we've come in the field to, to think about learning mm-hmm. where we first primarily thought about teaching. Yeah. And I wasn't so interested in my teaching as I was in their learning. And I can remember a kid, uh, the very first day that I taught in Oakland, and I was going on about my syllabus. And he raised his hand. He said, are we going to do anything fun in here this year? And <laughs> you know, he was joking. We, you know, we, we got along fine, but it was... I guess what i wanted to do was to get them excited and i was more addicted to their excitement than i was to anything i wanted to do so i you know i had british lit and uh you know we start out with beowulf and beowulf reminded me a lot of hip-hop you know he's always bragging they're in the mead hall and i just said like what songs are you listening to that remind you of beowulf and they started bringing in like really good songs and like they got super excited about it and we were talking about violence and the glorification of violence and you know a little bit of misogyny and just the um you know some of the uh maybe the the underbelly of the saxon culture but then the the spectacle of it Mm -hmm. and then i just had to kind of keep topping each unit you know so and they're like listen to the goodie mob and listen to this and that and then we went into canterbury tales was the second unit and um i got this idea to have a court trial and put chaucer on trial for his portrayal of the pilgrims and then You know, it just kept rolling, Sir Gawain, and then, like, what are we going to do for Hamlet? So in that first year, we just had to throw away everything, because they were, they had increasing demands, because each unit was getting more and more fun, and Mm -hmm. so the part about the fire was really um, a combination of a poetry unit that included uh, rap music, and that was just seen as, like, a non-starter, teaching film, and doing film study in the classroom, we did Godfather, and the Odyssey, and... Then uh, social action projects where kids had to come up with a project about changing the world. And some of it was things that they saw in their community. Some of it was things they saw in the school. Mm. It wasn't that though. I mean, my administration was super supportive. It was making the newspaper. So it was, you know, it was fraught for you know being like 25, 26 and saying, we're just trying to get kids excited. I don't really consider myself a, a um, kind of a rabble rouser. I always consider myself as a, as, a, as a kid who takes out the trash for the neighbors. You know? <laughs> How do I get myself into this? Uh, I ask myself that a lot, but it was really just the, the like how do you get them excited? You know, I, I think I still ask that question a lot in the in the books and the articles and the talks and like, how do you get them to lean in? There's nothing like it, you know, when they're all leaned in and they're totally invested and they're trying to talk over each other and their hands are up. And like I'm willing to sacrifice almost any idea I have to get them to that point. And yes. it's just you become addicted to it. You don't, you know, mm-hmm. you, you can't like hear the crickets in the classroom anymore after that. So that, that's been just, you know, then you have to like add a bunch of theory and research onto that and like why it's important and, you know, do that thing. But it, it it was more instinctual at 22, 23.
0: My hat's off to every single teacher. And I think that's interesting that you said it used to be focused on teaching and now it's focused on learning. Is that across the board, you feel like? Because I do feel like that's changed quite a bit.
1: It's, 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 it's a more popular idea. I wouldn't say it's mainstream, you know, okay. but it's, it's average. But we're able to ask more questions now about how kids learn. Um, we're able to talk about terms like disengagement, mm-hmm. which, which I don't know that we would have, have worded it quite that way. My first year teaching was 1993. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot more language to talk about how kids are learning outside of school mm-hmm. and that they come to us as learners. Uh, what, are the, what are the barriers to motivation? A lack of confidence and a lack of agency. You know, really, if there's something I can do and something that I like, uh, I'm going to be more motivated. So I, I, we're certainly injecting the language of learning in a lot more, uh, even when we're talking about teaching. But how do you know kids are learning? It's not just what you get on a on a formative assessment or a, a you know a summative assessment. Is what you see in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I feel like we we've come a long way. I mean, the the world of education has changed tremendously in the past 30 years, and um, regardless of the kind of contemporary rhetoric, it's been just a pretty unilateral set of progress. And part of that I think is really just unlocking this uh, unlimited potential inside of them and just seeing what's possible for kids. Um, the, the number of kids are able to go on and, and have two year and four year college experiences as opposed to what it would have been in the eighties. It's just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really just remarkable.
0: It's exciting to me. Um, and I almost want to be a student again to a certain extent <laughs> Was there ever a time where you could talk to those students who had been so inspired by maybe the unorthodox way you were doing some things to see what the difference was for them? Were you ever able to sort of have any assessment of that? Yeah,
1: so I, you know, it's how I taught from the beginning. Obviously, I had my own um, educational experiences, and I, I kind of knew what my colleagues were doing. I've actually been in continuous touch with almost all the students I've taught um, to this day, so I, I, still, I still follow them, and, okay. you know, we, social media uh, facilitates that. I think the conversations were really about like, how the world sees them more than the pedagogy itself. It's more the outcomes of it mm-hmm. and uh, how, how they really wanted to continue that. A lot of them are teachers now. Um, a lot of them got involved in local community kinds of things. Um, they do everything. I just One of my basketball players, she just got elected to public office in this last wow. election. Nice. So it, the conversation is really with their lives you know, but there were moments um, when I told them I was going to go back to graduate school and they started to kind of freak out, like, you're going to leave. I'm was like, no, i going to stay here. But what I really want is um, for everyone in America to be able to have what we have in this class. And they were like, yes. And so there, there were those moments. Like, Well, this, these are the things that we think are really important. And so I would say, like, if you could speak to America's teachers, what would you say? Just know we want to learn, know our passion. You know, the whole sociology of youth was around deviance. Our expectations have been historically low for this group of people in terms of what their values are and, and what their investment is in their own futures. And so it's really look at the kids. Let's see them as strengths. Let's see them as additives to society and see them as genius. Um, there's a, I think, the most widely read book this summer that came out, the new one, Goldie Muhammad's Cultivating Genius. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, part of the cultivation is recognizing the genius that's there. So I I do think that was a really important part of the relationship with them. I was close to them in age, you know, I was in my early twenties, they were in their late teens. So we weren't so far apart. And they knew I had grown up part of my childhood in the city. My mom taught in the city. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we, we shared that. Mm -hmm. Um, and we shared this, um, bewilderment that people saw us so differently than we saw ourselves. And, you know, some of that has come to a head very recently that, um, it's kind of shocking because you just see yourself as normal and like everyone else and not everyone sees you that way. And so there's a real problem. (laughs) Uh, And they had, they weren't so aware of it, Mm -hmm. you know, because the community was insular, but the more they, you know, kind of, we looked at larger media and like, there's a, there's a referendum on us out there and it's just not accurate. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of the, the conversations that they wanted to have about education was about being loved Mm -hmm. and being seen as lovable and, and, and being regarded as as good people, um, like uh, like the people who taught them, saw themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. I can see why they responded to you. I would like to give our audience some kind of a common framework to talk about literacy. If you had to give the simplest definition of what literacy is, what would you say?
1: So the short one would be the power to read the word in the world so that you might become authors of the word and the future of the world. There's five really small components of, of, of how you put that together. Since we're talking about education, I, I think about children and young adults, but that they can understand the text that they read. And I think about that in, in three ways, that they can decode them, you know, to be a reader of the word, you have to be able to decode, to, to understand the words on the page, but you also have to comprehend and, and, and you have to be able to ask meaningful questions about those texts. Uh, and, and the second would be like, how you learn to read the world you live in. Uh, how do you make sense of the news how do you make sense of why some people live one way and other people live another way and it's the same thing you want to be able to decode that environment and the words that we read in text whether it's newspapers or children's books help us to read the world Mm -hmm. um so that's the third part you become a reader of the word and the world Mm -hmm. but then uh, i think we've moved more to not just reading but but what do you do with that um how to kids and young adults develop unique identities in relation to that world around them and how do they find their own voices, whether it's a speaking voice or whether it's a voice in the digital literacies or their writing voice. How can they share their own stories as actualized beings and world changers? So it really kind of moves from this understanding the text and understanding the world and understanding my my place in that world and then being able to, to make things, to do things, to write things. and so. You can see literacy is kind of essential to our being um and it, it's what it's what ties us to histories, what ties us to community and culture it's what allows us to to engage you know i think of people like thomas jefferson or or socrates or or jesus right who've talked about um the word and and how important that is um to our own understanding of ourselves because uh you know harry jacobs talks about in the slave narratives to contemplate freedom right to to read yourself as, 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 as someone who deserves freedom while you are enslaved creates a cognitive dissonance. And that's partly um, bolstered by her journey to literacy during that time as a slave. I think that, you know, we, we really want these kind of three moves, the reading, um, the kind of self-awareness, and the, and the social action.
0: One of the things that resonated to me in that bio you just sent was words as seeds. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that?
1: like words help to bring ideas into being. Um, Again, with the slave narratives, uh, Henry Louis Gates, who's a professor at Harvard talked about, we speak and write ourselves into being. And um, I think of uh, Robert Kennedy's eulogy of his brother, Jack. And he says, he just saw things that didn't exist yet and wondered why not. So the words can be seeds, right? So you you talk to a five-year-old about like becoming a a poet one day and then she becomes Amanda Gorman, right? The words are a seed. You just, you say, you're a poet, you're a genius. You're beautiful, gonna change the world. And, and, and then they, they become ideas. I love in John, you know, the word became flesh, right? And it's like the idea is like the seed can become flesh. It's just this little thing you plant in the ground, it comes up. It's a pumpkin, it's a carrot, it's something that you can dig into. But at first, it's a seed, it's, a, it's invisible, no one can see it. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the words are seeds. Um, but sometimes, you know, they're not pumpkins or carrots. They come up as more like poison roots. You are no good, mm. you don't belong you are second class, you are ugly, you are poor, um, your beliefs are wrong, right? So it, we, you know, they, they're not innocuous, right? And, and literacy is not just um, kind of a positive trajectory if, if the stories that you're getting access to are, are poison or, or dangerous or harmful to you. Um, so we want to plant seeds that are um, nutritious, that, mm-hmm. are, that, that, that are sustaining. Um, but words can do both. That's why literacy is so important. You have to you have to be careful. We have to navigate a world that that runs counter to a lot of the beliefs that we hold dear, uh, and kids must do that as well. But when I said words are seeds in the bio, I'm talking about in the positive sense. How do you uplift? How can I think I say in that same paragraph? My my very words are love. They're me. Right? The words words can be love, mm-hmm. and you want to plant those seeds of love inside of our our youth and let them know that they are loved. They are lovable and they are capable of love. Uh, And and we can do that, you know, partly through through the language that we use to communicate with them.
0: Wow. How do you think is the best way to help these children and young people find their own voices? Where do you begin?
1: I think you begin with story. Um, So kids are natural storytellers, but they are first story experiencers. And we tell them stories. You say you tell stories through documentaries. We also tell um, story around the dinner table or on a road trip and um, just exposing young kids to to our more indigenous stories of who we are and how we came to be who we are, um, reading to children. And so they understand that the world is full of story. It's a big place. You come into the world able to listen and understand before you're able to speak. And that's uh, for a reason, because there's a lot to learn. But I do think um, as early on as possible, um, kids become storytellers. And there's um, this kind of multi-directionality of story. And the more you're able to tell a story, the more you become voracious for the stories of others. It never stops. It's not, it's not a point where, okay, I've heard enough story. I'm going to go write some myself now. <laughs> but it's, it's a recursive. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we constantly want to continue to give kids access to, to more and more story and the skill set. To be able to share their own story, and I think that's where education comes in, whether it's formal or informal, um, like setting up an art studio or you know the having a, a keyboard or a piano you can tell a story through the piano, but you have to learn the notes. And so education is really important. Um, how do you how do you construct story? You think about the language of film, you know, and montage and long cuts, and you know just the mm-hmm. the, the realism of Italian cinema versus kind of like a a Quentin Tarantino film right <laughs> you know, there. They it can't be more different, but there's technique. It requires an education. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we support that if we are educators? Sometimes what's what's absent is the um this phase between kind of hearing stories and really creating a learning context mm-hmm. for how kids can do this powerfully. Because you run the risk of moving from a didactic pedagogy to just a laissez-faire where you say, have at it, and that's not effective. I can remember we brought in when I was in LA filmmakers because kids were doing documentary film and there was this filmmaker he was a cool avant-garde kind of guy and he first taught them how to pack and unpack the film and he's like hold on before you hold my camera you know and he was like he was in it right he's like you just you can't come grab the camera and he talked about how close you have to be in documentary and how to frame a picture and then they were able to tell stories you know, some of them became really good documentarians, but he was hard on them. He's like, ah, you're so far away. That's like two dots back there, right? You got to get up. You got to like, <laughs> you know, you got to know what they have for breakfast, right? With the camera and those sorts of things. And uh, yeah. I, I think it's the same in, um, in other genres as well. Um, it's just being a Washington story though and understanding that the story is really how we constitute ourselves as members of cultures and communities. You know, it's like if you played a sport or you, you had a certain kind of art form that you followed, you can't see it enough. You need to see them, but you need your own blank canvases Mm -hmm. and you you need people who can help you be you. And I think that's the dilemma in education, because it's like either I'm hands off or I'm just uh, like I got a cookie cutter model. But how do I help you be you Mm -hmm. is is something that kind of keeps me up at night. How do I how do I help them along this road, but but, but kind of disturb them a little bit when they're too comfortable? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, how do I get out of the way? But how do I lead the way? And and I think that's, that's that's part of the kind of the beauty of pedagogy, um, because because you're supposed to be active, but it's a gradual release model because one day they're going to become you. They're gonna they're gonna you know become the people who are who, are, who are in control, mm-hmm. and 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 we want access, but we also want the skill set and the sensibilities, mm-hmm. and we have that role as parents, grandparents, neighbors, parishioners, teachers, principals. Um, the skill sets and the values are really important to, to transmit.
0: How do you instill a joy of reading, a joy of learning, a joy of valuing oneself?
1: So part of it is the relationships that you're building and, and they have to be filled with stories. So I think we've we've come past the moment where um, we took our most vulnerable kids and held story from them, and they just had worksheets and, and it was not the story, it was complete this sentence and what word is missing and that sort of thing. And so um, it's got to be authentic. It would be like being in, you know, playing scales and never getting to play a song.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I think that we've, we've kind of solved that problem. I mean, okay. You know, read aloud and you know, all mm-hmm. that stuff is, is back. Mm-hmm. But I think there are other elements to your question that are important. And you do want to go from the whole to the parts. And so part of decoding is not just reading the words on the page, but understanding genre, understanding form, understanding structure and technique. And you're getting it as you're reading these whole stories. And so the comprehension, you know, and the questions that you ask really do become about like, how did the author put this together? So, you know, Jody and I have this three-part um, model of reading. You're reading behind the text and you're trying to understand who the author is and where they came from, but the, how they're trying to communicate. You read within the text and what's their style, what's their prose, what's their diction? And so kids are asking those sorts of questions and then they get out in front of the text and they think about like what they might do, how they might improve it, how they might write their own text. So you, you're you you're dealing with these whole stories. You know, I can think of uh, my dad pacing behind the chair, coaching the, the TV during the football game. And we're watching the football game. He's like, how could you run on third and eight? You know, you gotta, you gotta pass, right? So, you know, you're, you're breaking it down and you're watching it. You kind of see the pageant of the game, but you understand like you don't normally run the ball when it's third and eight. And so literacy is really about uh, kind of pulling the car apart, you know, and like, seeing what the carburetor does and what the battery does and you know and and so there, there's these techniques and these skill sets and then there's this beautiful language as tony morrison talks about there's there's the there's the vocabulary but it doesn't make any sense unless you see the car run or you hear the song or you watch the game or you see the story right and mm-hmm. so we we kind of deconstruct those and then they can reconstruct them in ways that make sense for them and that's that deconstruction and reconstruction that's really a work of literacy education from elementary on up through graduate school. We're doing that at different versions for different age groups. Okay.
0: I know we just came off of world read aloud day and I know how important it is to have stories read to you and to be part of that, but is there a joy of reading that got lost somewhere along the line? And is it a, a newer focus these days?
1: No, so that's a really, it's really important. There's a bunch of questions inside of that. I think a part of it is reading versus schooling mm. and uh, like how reading is taken up in school has been a challenge there's a lot of research that says when students choose what to read they enjoy it more Mm -hmm. and so you you take a um like what a perfect reading life would be outside of school like a summer you know where no one's asking you what the lexile level is of that book and you're just you know at the beach with judy bloom or (laughs) upstairs in your bedroom reading you know the crossover and you know imagining yourself making up your own lines or playing basketball that sort of thing and so um that's still a pretty um I think pristine experience the joy of reading um, on your own, at your own pace, something that you choose. And mm-hmm. um, with access to the right books, again, where kids can see themselves and it's not just kind of see yourself in terms of this person looks like me, but you know, maybe you're a baseball player and there's a bunch of biographies on baseball and you love it. Or you like, you know, Nancy Drew and the mysteries or Harry Potter and you kind of, see yourself in, you know, uh, Hogwarts, you know, whatever, you know, in the defense against the dark arts, and, you know, there's, 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 something special about that, or, you know, watching the kids go through the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, there's just a genius to literature. So I've had an opportunity in my life to talk to authors about just the joy of it. But then, you know, they're also really good books to help kids develop academic skills. Mm-hmm. And so reading is something that has to be taught in school. So then, it becomes more fraught. It's tested, you know. It's regulated, uh, mm-hmm. and um, there's hierarchies. And you know, you might not have seen yourself as a bad reader until you got into school, and like all of a sudden, you know, Cindy's just kind of reading those sentences fluently, and I get, I get stuck on every third word. And so you develop an identity that then interrupts your reading outside of school. Um, David Pearson's colleague, um, he's been, you know, in this field for almost fifty years, and he talks about reading identity mm-hmm. as being the thing you know, and so when that identity gets disrupted, and you say, I'm a bad reader, you don't want to be at the beach with Judy Bloom anymore, you don't want to see books, you don't want to do homework, you just kind of push it away. Yeah. So there's a real challenge, because part of the reading instruction happens in schools has to be a little didactic, and has to be a little bit remediating, and has to push you and challenge you. And, and so does the joy get lost? Yeah. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's complex, mm-hmm. because you really do need to to push kids and challenge them. But you constantly have to be coming back to keeping these identities sacred as readers. And so a lot of work that I do and colleagues, the work I've done with Pam Allen, some of the things that Jodan and I have come out to say, you can do both and um, it can be rigorous and it can be engaging. And I think if you look at game theory or if you just look at social theories of learning, the challenge isn't necessarily a barrier. Kids wanna be challenged, but they wanna know that they can face those challenges. They don't want it to be easy. They just want there to be a pathway through. And so if we continually come back to, you know, we're pressing here, but then there are moments where like, you're just writing a story Like Donald Graves is a, you know, a, a writing researcher in one of his books is like, just let them write, you know? So there's gotta be moments of that where you can play. And yes, I'm gonna teach you perspective in an art class, but then I'm just gonna let you play on the canvas. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we have to balance that or else we'll lose the joy. Um, we have to keep it authentic or else it won't make any sense. Um, but we do need to push children and challenge them to, to reach their higher selves. And we just need to think about how best to caricature that challenge for them. This is why, you know, I think that people who have done that the best, you know, in this health battle that I've been fighting. My football coach checks in with me every Friday and we kind of reminisce on what it was like 30 years ago. And, you know, um, he was hard, but he says, I'm hard because I believe that you are capable of so much more than what you know and and when we do that with kids and, and there's the payoff we're going to have you know you're going to write a one-act play you know you're going to present your poems we're going to go talk to the mayor and so they they understand that and then there's more joy in the challenge but I think that when you lose your joy the challenge is when your identity becomes disrupted mm-hmm. and and so we, we can we can as, as David Pearson would say we can keep the identity sacred and we can still challenge and you need various kinds of reading lives. You need moments in class where there's independent reading, where you're reading a book below your Lexile for fun and fluency. You need moments where there's a read aloud and you're just kind of curled up collectively in the teacher's lab. And then you need to be kind of hit in the face with a challenge and text and 10 questions that, you know, you're struggling with. And all of that needs to happen. And then you need your own stories. And so it's just got to be like a studio, you know, where, where all these things are happening. And then I think um, those moments where you are being stretched make more sense for you. The other part of your question, you know, I've really been thinking about this more and I worry sometimes that the directions that we give to parents are asking them to be like teachers. And I want parents to only be doing the joy part. Um, I don't want parents to, you know, be the homework helpers necessarily. You know, it's just, if we just read with kids for 15, 20 minutes or created a quiet place for them to read for 15, 20 minutes and talk to them about what they were reading and had really good um, relationships with librarians and teachers about how to choose books, for kids, you know, and had access to those books, that would do much more value than um, correcting the homework at home. Hmm. And what parents say is, um, I don't have the skill set of the teacher to be able to guide them through this homework, but I can certainly read stories of them and talk about story. (laughs) And and that's better. I'd like for, you know, there to be less of that kind of engagement at home and more in the school and the home really just be how to be a great interlocutor around text and how to have better access to books that I can have in the home and just some simple guide points for me to be a parent, having a, a dialogue with my kids. Then in school, there are going to be those places where you're doing language work and you're you're doing grammar work and um, you are expanding your vocabulary. You are increasing your level of comprehension. Hopefully there's enough of kind of the authentic story that surrounds that practice. And, and much of the curriculum I see now is really, you know, you are guided by good stories and good questions as you're developing those skills or not discreet from the practice of, of getting into story and making your own story. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we're moving in the right direction, Audrey. I just um, If there's, there's one quip I have, it's uh, I think we're not using parents in the right way. And, and we need to bring that work back in the school and have the work at home be much more joyful and authentic for kids and parents.
0: I think uh, many parents are now breathing a <laughs> sigh of relief. Yeah. <laughs> mm. we're, we're speaking about this sort of being a unique moment in time why is this an important conversation to be having right now? Is there an equity and justice element that you believe is critical in literacy right now?
1: I do. I do think that it is a unique moment in time for us, even outside of this moment that I've often said that uh, literacy is a civil rights issue of our time. And I think about it in a couple of ways. One question that, that I ask is, what can education do or what kind of education do people need to live faith-filled lives of decency and dignity in the 21st century? A lot of the problems we have um, in terms of inequity, in terms of life outcomes, have their origin and inequity in terms of educational input. And the more literacy skills that people have and the more they're able to read the word in the world and do things we've been talking about the last half hour, the more likely they are to be authors of their futures and the more likely they are to have lives of decency and dignity. And sometimes we see inequity and we say, it's because the people are unequal when what really is inequitable is the distribution of resource, the literacy education. And so you, you see in, in some of these social movements, people are talking about this unemployment and ghettoization and segregation. A lot of those problems are caused by unequal access to education. And they become exacerbated in a time like COVID, where you have unemployment. And you know, here in South Bend, we've consistently hovered over 25% unemployment. You can map that right on the education. And we know that across every demographic group, the more educated a person is, the healthier life outcomes they have, longer life expectancy, um, the health and wellness of their children. So it's, it's a real issue for us. And it's one that, you know, we, it doesn't have to be a problem. There's another part of the literacy, and, and you think about the, the meta stories and the news and the world and the harm they cause. And so in this particular moment, you, know, you can read the news and, and begin to see yourself as lesser. Mm-hmm. And, and so how do we help kids to be able to read the world uh, in a moment like this, and not become people who are filled with hatred and bitterness and rage, but to bring a love and understanding, even as you're insisting on your own right to your own dignity, and, and that's a challenge, you know, I've taught across the from elementary to graduate school and reading the world can be hard sometimes because you don't want to reciprocate the hatred, but you want to be aware of it. And, and this is a, a task we all share, you know, I talk about critical media literacy a lot, but part of that critical media literacy is um, being able to understand how to engage these stories and how to keep yourself safe from the, the harm those stories can cause, but to engage the world where these stories proliferate, you know, how do we give our kids access to better stories is also, um, you know, an important part of literacy in this time, the books that we choose, uh, how do we help kids understand their place in the world? Uh, how can we expose them to authors who might share, um, a different way of looking at the world? How do we tap into our own family stories and our own histories? Um, so there's an, a lot of places where, you know, literacy can intervene really powerfully. You know, I think of, um, justice as a word you used, uh, justice is access to our true selves and it's an invitation to to true being in the world and there's a lot of ways that we can talk about it kind of you know arbitrarily or 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 tangentially but it's really about what access kids have in schools and outside of schools and so we have to talk them through you know insurrections and we have to talk them through brutality and we have to talk them through crises in health and um, talk them through the struggles that we face in in families and communities. And then the seven strengths work that Pam and I do, we kind of end with hope, but you want an audacious hope, not an unreasonable hope. Why should I be hopeful um, for my future? And one of the reasons you can say is because you're receiving an excellent education. Mm -hmm. It's because, you know, we have access to the kinds of products in the home and in the community that are gonna help you to learn. Um, You've got a platform where you can talk and share your opinions and grow, and we can help you here. We can help you in school. You can get help in your parish. And we want to make sure that we have those supports in place. This is not a country where anyone needs to drop out of high school. It's not a country where anyone needs to walk into a classroom and there aren't books on the back shelf. It's not a country where, where anyone shouldn't be able to go on foot to a library and there's open up and there's a treasure trove of books that are free for them. And we have, we move moved the needle. Like I guess the high school graduation rate right now is 85%. It was probably 20% lower when I started. So we're moving in the right direction, but there's so much more that we can do, right? Instead of saying it's a shame that the world is like this, how do we get more books in the hands of kids, right? How do we become reading ambassadors to the people in our neighborhood, in our parish, in our home? How do we become reading advocates for the local school? And how do we, as adults, take better care of the stories we share with children? These are things that we can do better and more. And to me, that's what adds up to equity and justice. You just talk about those terms and they just seem like Mars and Jupiter, but but I can figure out how to make sure every book in my local Catholic and public school has a classroom library. I can figure out 15 minutes a day to FaceTime with my nephew and read to him and have him read to me, right? And these are the things that matter. Yeah. And so when I drill down and work with parents, it's like, it's very tactile. Do Let's do these things. Um, that's what's going to get us to equity and justice. And when you're talking to teachers and principals, let's do these things. That's what's going to get us there. And then it doesn't seem like Mars and Jupiter. It could just be down the block. It could be Myers and Martins. <laughs> Those are grocery stores in South Bend, by the way, closer than the planets.
0: (laughs) Can we walk through a few more of those things? What can people do? They're like, well, I'm just one person. So first
1: and foremost, I would go back into the reading being a reader and an audience for readers, um, whether you're parents of school aged children, or you've got nieces or nephews or neighbors, who are the people in my life um, that I need to read for and be read to from are really important. And just understanding that and just being, you know, how can I get them books? you know, for birthdays or whatever, Um, but I want to be a reading friend um, to these folks, uh, family and neighbor. And then I think uh, being a reading advocate, uh, the the beauty of the American education system is that um, we can almost all walk to an elementary school and you can walk to that school and say, how can I, what can I do to be a reading advocate? And it could be uh, volunteering a certain amount of funds to contribute to a classroom library could be volunteering to read to kids. I think it's also a kind of a faith community question. You know, what can we do to be advocates for reading that there's always books in the parish or, you know, that we've got a way to to do that very tangibly, right? Because these are these are the the institutions right in our neighborhood promoting really positive stories of the past and present, being a storyteller. Sometimes we talk about it as a counter storyteller. And how do we tell story um, very explicitly to those around us, and how do we keep those who are in the public discourse accountable for the kinds of stories that they tell? And we can go a long way at, at, at helping those in our families and our communities um, to be more positive receivers and tellers of story. Like I, see, I see what you're seeing on the television, but that's not that's not how we do it, right? And, and so when Pam and I talk about the strengths and practicing kindness and friendship. And if, if our kids or our neighbors or our nieces and nephews, grandchildren, see us enabling our humanity and unlocking the humanity in others, they will learn from that. Just like I could, you know, rat off a bunch of things that I learned from my father. It's very tangible. So, uh, and, and, and our sphere of influence is large. And then finally, like practicing the seven strengths, belonging, being someone who kind of welcomes people into a community and forming a community. I think our communities are so frayed. The the churches are empty. The markets are empty. People are behind closed doors. And talk to the neighbor. Talk to the people around you. Have a sense of curiosity and asking questions. And what can we do? And um, practice friendship and kindness. And think about what that means from just shoveling an extra half block of snow to volunteering to kind of virtually sit with a a kid in your family or a, a child of a friend while the parent has a meeting and say, well, we'll FaceTime and I'll read to them. And then practicing courage and hope. What, what would I like to have happen? What I, would I like to be a part of? One of the things that I think I've learned with kids is the gap between their hopes and their confidence is what determines whether they'll be world changers or not. But they all have those hopes, but they don't always have a confidence that, like, I can do it. We have to drill down and say, you know, um, who's going to hold me accountable? Who can I walk with? We have to become retethered. I mean, that's why we start with belonging. Just in some ways, document it right on the back of an envelope. These are all the people that I can touch, and this is my world. Um, this is what I'm going to be responsible for. These 25 people, right? They will hear from me. I will pray for them. I will read to them. I will fight for them. I will love them. I will be kind to them. I will pass on the wisdom of my grandmas and grandpas to them. Right? We we all have that reach. And we just have to kind of challenge ourselves to dig in.
0: Very well said, of course. There's hope in being able to change that voice inside someone's head. Does that make sense?
1: It it does. You know, and I think, it's a question of reach and access. That's why I say being retethered you know is important and, and thinking about those kind of immediate spheres, but you're right. some people will get lost in that. I don't know how, how far we go down this road, but I, you can't have a complete community without stronger faith communities. You've, the government can go so far and schools can go so far and families can go so far. but we um, you know it could be a parish, it could be a synagogue, it could be a mosque, it could be a church, it could be a community-based organization. Mm-hmm. We probably want to think about um, how, how we live in community. You know, I think about the, um, the call of the Holy Cross is to like live in community, right? And it's a big, it's a big deal. It, it's not an overnight thing, you know, because uh, a lot of industrialization has led to us being pretty atomized from one another. And, and that's become clear to me just through the cancer and the COVID, how atomized one can become. But uh, we have to challenge ourselves to find these people. We can find ways to be more connected to others. Yeah.
0: You have a unique perspective right now. Tell me where you find your sources of hope.
1: I think I find my sources of hope really in, um, in my ancestors and those who came before me and who maintained hope and dignity under far more dire circumstances than I find myself in. And you have a lot of pictures of, of our immediate ancestors around the house and it just what I see when I look at them is dignity. You know, I want them to be proud of me. I want my dad and my grandma and you know, those who come before me, look at them and I say, I hope you're proud. Uh, I hope I make you proud. I also find hope uh, in, in the next generation who will look to me and who will follow me. And I think, what kind of example have I set for them? You know, for my sons and for my students. I find hope in my faith. And, and you have to, you know, when, when you're down and, and, and the odds are against you and you say, um, I've been blessed and uh, I owe, right? I mean, we, we have a debt and I think it's a beautiful debt. You know, we're given grace, but our debt is that we share love. You be love. You, you live love. Every day that you get to do that, there's hope. You know, I, I, I count my days on my hands now. <laughs> and, and I think that it's a, it's a, it's a privilege Um, because I just there's not there's not time to waste. I think sometimes the discourses of of the world lead us to believe that you know we've all been beaten down and we haven't been given much and we don't look at what we've been given. We've been given life. We've been given sunlight. We've been you know given air to breathe and flowers to smell and people around us and neighbors and we have to be better caretakers of that hope. Um, We have to be more humble and and the grace that we've been given and the mercy that's been shown to us. Even though many of us have faced things in our lives that are um, unfair, we, we still have a, a debt to pay. And, and so I, that, that's kind of where I am. You know, I don't worry about myself so much. I just worry about what can I do with the time I have left to reach people, to make my grandma proud and to, to move us one step closer. What can I do to repay what I've been given I can't repay it, but I can do everything that I can to move toward that goal. And that's kind of, that—that's that's, my life belongs to the people I love, um, as it should.
0: Something tells me um, all those people will be very proud of you. So, <laughs> and can. thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate yeah. it. It's been it's such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Audrey. Likewise. And thank you all for joining us for Think Pair Share. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Check out our website at iei.nd.edu forward slash media for this and other goodies. Thanks for listening. And for now, off we go.